Good morning. Good morning. I'll call your attention to one more announcement. Um, Mark didn't miss it. I just wanted to be able to call attention to it. If you open your a worship folder, it talks about the upcoming message series. And the upcoming message series and an upcoming Sunday school offering are coincidental. So what we'll do next Sunday, the message will be on 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. It's put there. So what we're going to talk about, the letter of 1 Peter, is about staying the course in difficulty and in suffering. There it lists the different things we'll talk about during the message. Now, what will happen? At 9 o'clock, we'll have a new Sunday school class that will meet in the fireplace room around tables. It will be a discussion-oriented questions around the same topic that we'll talk about during the message. So what will happen, you come around, sit around a table, some questions that will allow you to get to know other people a little bit better, some open up questions, uh, how often have you moved, what was it like when you moved, and we get a chance to get to know one another. When we come here, we don't always get the chance to interact, and so this will be an opportunity to sit around tables, allow, and just get to know other people, and then there'll be some questions that don't require advanced study, which will allow us to look at some of the things that we'll be dealing with in the message. So you'll be thinking about the text prior to the message, and then you'll be able to compare what was said around the table with what was set up here, and you'll be able to check us out, maybe. <laughs> but at any rate, so that's going to happen next week at 9 o'clock. Again, discussion order should be fun, and it's going to be facilitated by Randy McCoy and some others. So I just want to let you know about that. Um, we are in the last week of a series where we've been looking at Jesus' miracles, and um, what we've described from week to week, miracles are supernatural intrusions into the natural world. And the reason why it's interesting to look at them is that miracles tell us about Jesus and about his kingdom. And with that in mind, let's look at the last one, Jesus' ascension. When he went up into heaven after having risen from the dead, been with the disciples for the period of about 40 days, and then he returned back to the Father. Here's what we read in Acts chapter 1. Verses 6 through 11. So when they, the disciples, had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of the sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Mount of Olives is located just outside of Jerusalem. When Jesus was raised, the place where he ascended was Bethany, which is a um, 
it's on the eastern side of the Mount of Olives, and Jesus had been now risen from the dead, appeared to his disciples in a number of different settings over the course of 40 days, and they wonder what is next on God's agenda, and they ask him a question. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? The question reflects a Jewish hope that exists because the Bible talks about it, that Israel would be free from their enemies and will become a nation to which other people will pay homage and become subservient. That is something that the Bible indicates. And they were wondering if this was the next thing on God's docket. They understood the significance of Jesus, the Son of God, dying and being raised from the dead. He was a Jew, and they probably figured, and well, they should have, is, is now the time when this promise of uh, Israel being in a different spot, not under the dominion of another power, but power having dominion over others. And Jesus firmly and directly opposes the attempt to form a timeline. He says, it's not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus doesn't debate the fact that that will happen. What he contests and resists is any kind of efforts at establishing a timeline or knowing the time. He says it's not for you to know. Uh, this is something that the Father has set by his authority. It's not something that we are privy to look into. Since it's God's secret, there is no real place for human speculation, notwithstanding. There are no shortage of individuals who claim to be able to, well, I know he said that, but, and then we go and try to establish a timeline that, frankly, cannot be arrived at. It's something God knows. Uh, the disciples are to focus not on the timing of the end, but on the work given to them between Jesus' ascension when he leaves after his first visit and when he will come back again. And as we've said, Jesus entered the world the first time through a womb. When he enters the second time, he will be large and in charge. It will not be a soft, gentle entrance. He will bring everything to a conclusion. And this world as we know it will no longer exist. There will be new heavens and new earth, and, and it will be that way eternally. Um, this is what he tells them, the disciples, to focus on. He says, in lieu of this, they are to be his witnesses. As witnesses, and this is what he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. A witness is someone who helps establish facts through verifiable observation. A witness is somebody who saw something, heard something, tasted something, touched something, felt something. And because they were there, they experienced it with their five senses, then they can attest to the fact that it existed. That's what happened. I saw it. I heard it. I smelled it. And that's what Jesus tells the disciples, the 12 minus one at this point, another one will be added. All of them 
are required to have been with Jesus and have seen him. So when Judas, having died, they replace him, naturally they look for someone who was there, someone who didn't hear it secondhand, who saw it firsthand. Again, that's what a witness needs to do. Not all of us have had the luxury privilege of seeing things with our eyes. We believe, but we haven't seen. We can trace back our belief to one who did see. Individuals who did see, and they wrote down what they saw, and they explained what they saw. Uh, And these were the disciples. The disciples' direct and real experience of Jesus and his resurrection qualifies them as witnesses. The Holy Spirit will attest, will give them boldness, so that they will be able to say out loud in contested places what it is that they saw. In the case of being a witness to Jesus' resurrection and ascension, it's important to establish two things. What are the facts and what do they mean? What are the facts? What happened? What are the things that you observed? And not just what happened, what are we to draw from the fact that it did happen? Um, What facts are being established and why? We catch up with the disciples a little bit later on. Peter is the one who is speaking. And look what he says in Acts chapter 10, 38 through 43. And what you find here is Peter doing what Jesus told the disciples to do. This is being a witness. And so we join Peter and he's speaking, says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit, And with power, he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all that he did, both in the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day and made him to appear, not to all the people, but to us who had been chosen by God as witnesses, who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. And he commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives Forgiveness of sins through his name. The disciples understand that Jesus chose them, the Father chose them to be witnesses. The first-hand testimony of Jesus' resurrection and ascension is to what they are to testify to because they were there. They were in the upper room. He came in. And again, we'll see, not just as a spirit, Thomas touched them. They saw him eat. He came as a spirit, left not in the form that he came in. He came as an unembodied spirit. He left as an embodied spirit. There was no body in the tomb. Jesus is the first of a new race of individuals, eternal spirits within eternal bodies. A new race of, in fact, his going back to heaven constituted in one sense 
as weird as this might sound, a change in the deity. Prior to Jesus going back to heaven, flesh and blood was not part of the Godhead. Would you agree? When he comes back, he is in a body, an immortal body, and that constitutes an addition, a change in one sense to deity. God is spirit. Jesus is spirit and body. So what? We are spirit and body, and guess what? That's what it's going to mean to be part of the family of God. It's going to exist. Believing in Jesus means we're going to exist in the form that Jesus presently exists in. And we are going to exist with him forever. Jesus is there. He's going to remain there forever. Believers in him are going to go to the same place and be there eternally in the form that he exists in. Um, First-hand testimony, again, is important. The problem is that all kinds of people came forward with testimony of what Jesus did and said. The disciples were in a unique opportunity place because they were there. But then that didn't keep a bunch of people from claiming to have heard things directly from Jesus that they were told to pass on. And so if somebody ends up saying, I tell you what, no joke, here's what happened. I was going here and then Jesus appeared to me. And this is what he told me to say. And you might think, well, I know Mike. He's a little bit loopy. So I'm, I'm not, you know, but it might be somebody a little more credible like Mark or Jason. <laughs> um, but how, how would you determine if we're true or not? Mark might have inhaled a few too many bugs and it might have created some type of brain thing that he thinks he sees something, but he doesn't. It, would you agree it's very difficult if somebody claims to have a spiritual experience to be the one to say, um, I don't buy it. And that ended up happening. Um, the church has always had a hard time discerning what is valid and what is contrived. This is why the leaders of the church, from the get-go, they try to identify that collection of writings that seem to have the weight of first-hand testimony. That's why we have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four Gospels. They were written by individuals who had direct first-hand witness testimony. They saw it. And you say, okay, yeah, so what's the deal? But there were a lot of Gospels that came out. There's the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Thomas. In fact, in, if you remember the Da Vinci Code, if you watch the movie, they talked about the hidden Gospels that the church had suppressed, Gospels that people wrote, and you, if you saw the movie, you ended up saying, I didn't know that Mary Magdalene wrote a Gospel. Uh, Thomas, the guy who puts his finger in Jesus' side, he wrote a Gospel too. And it feels kind of confusing. Now, the, now, what ended up happening? It wasn't really Thomas and Mary Magdalene. In fact, these Gospels were written in the second century, and they were long dead. You know what ended up happening? People would claim to have had Jesus speak to them and would put as authority Mary Magdalene. This is the Gospel. Now, she was long dead. And so, and these writings, if you look at the gospel, like Thomas, 
It's not a gospel. It doesn't have details about Jesus. In fact, it's only 114 verses long. And these pithy little sayings. And again, I'm not throwing dirt on. It's it's an interesting document. But to put it alongside Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John as another valid gospel, if you look at it, you say, of course not. It's not even the same thing. So the church, what they understood is there's a need to Let's put it, collect it together. Those documents that have the weight of scriptural authority, they seem to be ordained, God-breathed. And, and in the early part of the 4th century, they collected what we have now as the New Testament, the canon of the books and letters that we think we seem to have that have weight and authority, as opposed to those which might be interesting but not authoritative. Um, one of the things that, one of the major heresies, I'll just add this because it was one that the Gospel of Mary Magdalene, the Gospel of Thomas, they had this thing that Jesus, he really didn't take on a body because a body is bad. They had this anti-body thing that spirit is good and flesh is bad. Spirit, good. Flesh, bad. And so this was dualism. Anything spirit, oh, that's a good thing. Flesh, <laughs> And so what they did, because flesh was bad, it didn't count. So it led to two different kinds of perversions, I'd say. There were individuals who, because the flesh is bad, so then what you want to do is you want to whip the daylights out of it. So they had these individuals called flagellants. If you saw the Da Vinci Code, the guy, he put this thing around his leg and tightened it in order to make it bleed. And there were people who went around whipping themselves. If the body doesn't count, what you want to do is beat the body so that your spirit is always on top. That's one kind of thing, which seems weird. The other kind was if the body is irrelevant, then indulge it. And so just eat whatever you want, sleep with whoever you want to sleep with. And these two Lines went off, and both of them were based on the fact that the body, Jesus, the body is bad. That's why Jesus never really had a body. Now, you, you might say, Mike, this sounds weird. But people at that time were saying, oh, that's interesting. Hmm, maybe he didn't. Maybe he did. And these individuals that wrote, it was so spiritual. That's why the Gospels are as important as they are. Here's what, here's what the people who were there said. Listen, in terms of when Jesus appeared to them in the upper room, now you, they're making a point. And, and now that you know what was happening at the time, those who wrote the Gospels wrote in the years following, they saw what was happening. They saw all these people claiming to have words from Jesus. So listen to this. Jesus, now this is in Luke's account. Luke wrote the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts. So he is the church historian who writes records from the beginning through the Gospel of Luke, ends it at the Ascension, begins Acts at the Ascension, and moves forward through the mission of the church to Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria, to the outermost part of the earth. He takes it from beginning to end, Alpha to Omega. At the end of the Gospel is what he said. Jesus himself stood among them, and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking they saw a ghost, which at, you think of the heretics. At that, that's exactly what they saw. Jesus wasn't in a body. He was just a spirit. You know, he came in that way. Um, he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts 
rise in your mind. Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones. That's what he said. I'm not a ghost. Ghosts don't have flesh and bones. You can't put your finger into a ghost's side. He's, they are understanding it's important that Jesus lived and died. He's in a body. He's the first of a race of... No, you understand. And then when he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? Now, why is it important that Jesus eats with them? Ghosts don't eat. You know, if a ghost eats, I guess it puts it in stuff and it goes, you know, and it just goes right through and it comes right back out. It just, just throws it through something. I don't know. Do you have anything to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And he took it and ate it in their presence. And guess what? It didn't fall on the floor. It didn't fall on the seat. He had a body. In fact, they, when he showed up, they didn't always know who it was because he looked normal. What facts are being established? Jesus was raised and ascended bodily. And what else it says that Peter talks about is what he did. He did good deeds and he told good news. He died. He was raised from the dead. How do you know that? We saw him. He ended up showing up in the room where we were. How do you know? We were there. How do you know he ate? I saw him. Oh, you, well, I think I said, well, okay, maybe you think you did, but we saw him. It's a good thing, isn't it, that somebody was there to see him. So we know what he said. Not what somebody thinks he said. And again, if these things hadn't been written down, we'd be in the dark, wouldn't we? We wouldn't understand what he talked about. We wouldn't understand what he said about the Father and what the good news was. Uh, his post-resurrection appearances, his commission and ascension. So those are the facts, and we know the facts. The church does a really good job with what? I don't think the church, by and large, does as good a job with why. We're pretty good with the facts. Jesus rose from the dead. But we're not all that good at drawing out the implications of the what. Um, Why are these facts being established? What Peter indicates is it's to identify Jesus as the one anointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. It's to identify Jesus as the judge of the most supreme court. The ultimate supreme. Okay, now why is that important? So that when Jesus says, wraps the gavel, because of what, in fact, you might think the hammer through the nails as wrapping of the gavel. Because that's occurred, Jesus, as the judge of the world says, your sins are forgiven. Who says you can do that? The ones who validate who it is and what I said. That's what happened and why is it important that he's God? So that when he pronounces forgiveness, he's not just having a vision. He didn't just swallow a bunch of bugs. Um, This is what Peter says. He commanded us to preach the gospel. 
to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be judge of the living and the dead. To him, all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Why is it important to believe that Jesus is God? Because only God can forgive sins. Does that, oh, wait a minute, Mike. Does that mean that everyone's sins in the world are forgiven? If they believe it. But do they believe it? Sometimes we get the facts wrong. There's people that believe that Jesus didn't really rise from the dead. He passed out in the tomb. And he, there's a two-ton stone, and he pushes that out of the way with his head. And then he, he's bound in, in these, these wraps. And so he, he's bouncing around, and he appears to the disciples as the Lord of life. And nah, nah. But even with the facts... It's not always clear what the facts mean. What is the good news? And the good news that they understand is forgiveness. That's it. To be pronounced in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, into the remotest part of the earth. What's the news? That your sins are forgiven. And and it's important that you believe that because that's what the good news is. If you believe that Jesus is God who is the judge that comes and dictates on the Father's behalf. That's what he says, and that's what we are to believe. Forgiveness is the, the, the why that's important that Jesus is who he is. This is the gospel message. It's the good news. Um, what happened to the good news? Again, it's possible to hear that sins are forgiven, but there's always... You know those things, I get a kick out of them. It's, you know, these, these things, these medicines you can take that alleviate all these different things. Like, I forget what it is, the one that, that you take if you're smoking. I forget the one. It's, it's one of these ones. And then you know what they do? Then they have the things afterwards to talk about all the things. You know, madness, blight, black plague, your eyes could fall out. But I tell you what, you won't smoke a cigarette. And that's the important thing. Uh, you know, all these things, your head explodes, your arms fall off, and you're not going to go anywhere, but you will not smoke a cigarette. And that's, and so there's all this fine print at the end, and that's what happens with forgiveness. Your sins are forgiven. And then you've got all that stuff afterwards. You know, that's sins are forgiven. And then there's a long line of these disclaimers. Of, of course, that's if you confess. That's not what he says. Your sins are forgiven. And confession doesn't get you forgiven. It's agreeing with what's already happened. Forgiveness has been proclaimed. Jesus is in a position to announce it. And you say, well, Mike, what about sin? If you believe you're forgiven, guess what happens? You begin to act like a child of God rather than a slave of God. This is what the good news is. This is where it starts. This is why we need to believe that Jesus is God, so that we can believe that he can preach your sins are forgiven, so that you can believe it. And if you believe it, that makes you a... If you believe you're forgiven, that makes you a... Child of God, Christian, that's what a Christian believes. That's what the witnesses were told to say. Um, it's happened with good news. It says, look at Romans 4, 3 through 7. Again, this is not new. Abraham believed God, 
and it was counted to him as righteousness. What this is saying, and this is in your worship folder, in order to be righteous in God's eyes, you need to believe. Righteousness is given to someone who believes. What does God want you to believe? Okay, that Jesus is God, but what else? Well, here's what he says. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes him, in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sins. What is it that we are to believe? It's the thing because belief is central. It's how you become a Christian. And what we're supposed to believe is lawless deeds are forgiven, sins are covered, the Lord will never count your sin against you. Your Lord will never count your sin against you. Your lawless deeds are forgiven. Your sin is covered. That's what we are to believe. That's the belief that makes somebody a Christian. Not a bunch of stuff afterwards. Now, behavior matters, but the Christian life begins with belief. And that belief will mature into a lifestyle that will honor. And it takes time, but this is where it begins. Uh, That's the message and not always clear. The mission is, goes along, it says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. The witnessing will start in Jerusalem. In fact, this is a table of contents for the book of Acts. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the ends of the earth. Chapters 1 through 7 is Jerusalem. It's the mission to Jerusalem. Then in chapters 8 through 10, it moves to Judea and Samaria. Then in 11 and 12, a brief return to Jerusalem. From 13 on through the end of the book of Acts, it is to the end of the earth. And it's we don't know exactly, but... Some believe that when it gets to Rome, Rome is the hub of the Gentile world. When it gets to Rome, it gets to the router that can reach everywhere. And so it goes from Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria to the end of the earth. It's in a place where it can go everywhere. That's the mission that Jesus gives them in terms of proclaiming the message. Jesus doesn't intend, fortunately for us, the message just to go to Jews dispersed throughout the world, but also to Gentiles. Um, I've read this, and I think it's true. The church, we don't have a mission. We don't have a mission. We are a mission. It's not something that we, it's something we are. And what are, what kind of mission are we? We are to be witnesses of witnesses to indicate what the facts are, and why the facts are important. It's important that Jesus is God because then forgiveness is credible. 
And that's what we are to announce. Uh, Once the Gentile mission has achieved its purpose, the Bible indicates, and look what it says in Luke 21. It's the last verse. God will indeed turn his attention back to Israel. What If you look there in the unfolding of salvation history, there's some critical events. Naturally, God selecting Israel in the Old Testament is a critical event. And then... Jesus comes and announces the gospel. He understands at that point, and again, we've done this before, you're Jews and you're Gentiles, relative to the gospel, God gives the free ability for Gentiles to enter into his kingdom. But Jews, by and large, are given a stop sign. Now, there are a some Jews who believed, fortunately, that they did. All the disciples were Jewish. But what ended up happening is God selected out a portion of Jews to be the ones who will inform the Gentiles about what's happened. Gentiles didn't know. They didn't know the Bible. So what God did, those Jews who believed were used to seed the church of the Gentiles. That's what they, that's why it was kind of difficult because God was sending them into Gentile territory. They were mistreated, but the purpose for which God selected them is I want you to go tell them the good news. Okay, and they did. And then the Jews died out, but by and large, most Jews didn't buy Jesus because it was some of you I'm going to pick. Up, 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 up. The rest of you blind. You're not going to see it. This is the time of the Gentiles, and that's what ends up happening. There will be a time when this will stop. Again, and let me tell you exactly when that time is. I know it says here that we don't know, but I've looked, and what I understand is... Um, we do live in an interesting time. Um, uh, the UN Resolution 181, after two millennia of being dispatched and dispersed throughout the world, in 1947 in the fall, some of us, some of us were alive at the time, so many of us, 1947, it doesn't seem that far back to me. Anyways, um, Israel was voted to become a state. The nation of Israel had its property. They were back in their homeland after two millennia of not having a homeland to go to. In our time, God took his firstborn and put him back in his home. When will the next step occur? I don't know, but in the future, at some point, there will be an obvious, visible affirmation of the nation of Israel from God on high. It will look like miracles. People who try to oppose them will be absolutely unable to do so. Because at that point, the time of the Gentiles is still now. 
But there will be a time where that will stop. I don't know what that means. But God will go. I tell you what, when we get to heaven, we're going to spend a lot of time with our older brothers and sisters, expressing appreciation to that firstborn who experienced a bunch of stuff so that we could enter the church. I don't know what that will look like. It's really not true. It's not true. Israel didn't, the Israelites didn't drop the ball. They were sacrificed. That's what God does. He goes into a grave so that people can experience life. And that's why Israel went into a grave. And they will come out. And it will be obvious and clear. I like to be a behind the earth. We do well to be conscious of the message and the mission. Again, it's still the time of the Gentiles. Are you clear about the facts? Jesus did good deeds and good news. And they put him in a grave and he rose bodily. There was no one in there. He appeared to people. Ate food. They touched him. He was a spirit in a body. He went to on the Right by the Mount of Olives, they were there, and I guess the way it happened, it it gives the sense that he the cloud came down and enveloped him. That's the sense it gives. And this cloud came down and enveloped him, and he was raised up. And then on the on the far side, a couple of individuals showed up, and They told them about what was going to happen. Um, so what we know is that there will be a time when uh, God will turn things around. We have to be. We have the opportunity, though, now to be clear in our time. Still, our time. Clear. Are you clear with the uh, message, the facts, and what the facts mean, and the mission: Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, into the uttermost part of the earth. Because the fact is. Jesus will come back in the way we they saw him leave. He will come back bodily. And that's when things will end. And it might the ozone layer might have something to do with it, and global warming will have something to do with it. I'm not throwing rocks at those. But when things change, it will be because God determines that they will change. Whatever he uses, it will be his decision about when the earth will end. And when eternity begins, when those who have believed in Jesus, Jew and Gentile, I don't know what that looks like, end up going and living in the form that Jesus lives in, eternally, as members of God's forever family. Worship team, come on up. Dear Father, we thank you for your sovereign plan to send Jesus in the Spirit and to show us him embodied and to give us the confidence of that someday we will look like him, be like him, and be with you.
We thank you for what you've done, and we thank you for the mission that you've put us in and made us a part of this. Uh, may we do our part, because you already have and you promise to remain with us. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.